0: It is with confidence in that mercy that we turn now to the Word of God. You can see in your bulletin that we're turning this morning to the book of the Psalms, Psalm 60. Lately we've been making our way through 2 Samuel. And last week in 2 Samuel, we covered a good bit. We covered three whole chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And what we saw last week in those chapters is that God continued to bless David. More specifically, what we saw is that God continued to bless David in a wide variety of ways. Military victories on the field of battle. And also, willing tribute from kings and kingdoms around him. And also, able officials who served under him and who advised him. And also, personal character, so that David was the kind of man, he was the kind of king, who followed through on his promises. All of that was from God, all of those various blessings. So, our theme last week was the gamut of God's goodness, and thankfully, it's still the case that God is like that. He's good like that to us. So that was last week, 2 Samuel, chapters 8 through 10. This week, we're going to do something that we've done before, as we've been making our way through 1 and 2 Samuel over these months. It's been a few months since we've done this, but remember, something we've done on occasion in this series has been to cast a glance over to the book of Psalms and to spe- spend some time with psalms that David himself wrote at the time when he was going through the things that are recorded for us in First and 2 Samuel. And so this morning we're going to do that again. We're going to cast a glance over at Psalm 60. And... I will read that for us now, beginning with the superscription or the introduction. And as I read that, it will perhaps make sense why we're turning here today. So Psalm 60, hear now the word of God. To the choir master, according to Shushan Edith, a miktam of David for instruction, when he strove with Aram Naharaim. And with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the valley of salt. O oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake, you have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. That your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Sukah. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. This is the word of God. Let us go to the Lord now in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word, for speaking to us today through these ancient words of David. We pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice addressing us. For you are our wise and loving father and we, your humble children, and we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So from Second Samuel to Psalms this morning, it is a bit of a detour, but it is not entirely a departure. We, we've done this before in our first and second Samuel series. We've seen this before, the way different parts of the Bible, relate to each other, and how we can be blessed, how we can be helped to turn back and forth from one part of the Bible to another. So in one part of the Bible, you can read an historical account. You can read about something that happened, and of course, the account is true, and it says what it needs to say, and it serves its purpose, like an account in 2 Samuel. And then you turn a few pages over to the book of Psalms. And there you get a different perspective on the same event. Not a contradictory perspective. Not a perspective that takes away something you read before. Instead, it adds to it. It fills out your understanding. It sheds more light on what happened. And it also sheds some light on what it felt like for the people who were going through it. As I've said before, it's like the difference between reading the history of a war in a history book and then reading about the very same war in a collection of letters and diary excerpts that were written by the people who lived through it. Especially if it's a relatively condensed history of the war. Maybe it's just one chapter. Maybe it's just a few pages, a passing mention in a much larger book. Well, in that case, the letters and the diary excerpts and the poems and the prayers may tell you some things that the history book did not. Well, we've seen that sort of thing before in this sermon series, comparing First and 2 Samuel with the psalms that David wrote at the time. And this morning, here it is again. Because last week, we read about some of David's victories as king. Well Psalm 60 David wrote at the time of those victories and about those campaigns so that what we're left with is a fuller picture of what happened and what it felt like at the time of those campaigns and among other things what we're left with is the realization that it was not all victory and triumph from start to finish in fact it's it's a little jarring To read this psalm against the backdrop of what we saw last week in 2 Samuel 8, 9, and 10. So let's take a look here at this psalm. And we'll we'll walk through it. And then we'll take a step back and think about some lessons that we can glean from it. And let's start with the superscription, the introduction. What does it say there at the beginning? To the choir master According to Shushan Edith, that could be some kind of musical direction. Could even be a tune name. I think it's translated that way in some English Bible translations. And then we're told that this is a miktam of David for instruction. So this is some kind of poem, perhaps a poem to be sung that is for instruction. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the psalm, says this, quote, By these words, we are reminded that this psalm, with its heartfelt plea from man and its resounding word from God, is no museum piece, but a forceful message to every generation. Quote. This psalm is no mere museum piece. Brothers and sisters, we are not tourists in the museum this morning. This is the word of God and we are those who are leaning into the word of God for instruction so that we might be taught by what David says. here. And then after that, the rest of the introduction situates this psalm in history and it places it right where we were last Sunday in 2 Samuel. Look again at what David says here. It says, when he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Well, those were the military campaigns. Those were the victories that we read about last Sunday in 2 Samuel chapters 8, 9, and 10. So this is a psalm that accompanies those events. The Aramean Nation states, they were located off to the east of Israel and up north. The Edomites, they're mentioned here as well, they were located off to the east of Israel but down south. And sure enough, that's exactly what we saw last Sunday. David's campaigns raged far and wide on the map. And what this psalm is about to do for us, now that we've noticed the introduction, What this psalm is about to do for us is to help us understand just how dark and difficult those days were in the midst of those campaigns. Again, listen to how Kittler puts it. He writes this, quote, if it were not for this psalm and its title, that is what we just read, we would have no inkling of the resilience of David's hostile neighbors at the peak of his power. His very success brought its dangers of alliances among his enemies and of battles far from home, end quote. That's how Kidner puts it. He says, if it were not for the psalm and its title, we would have no inkling of the resilience of David's neighbors. Now I'll say, it might be a bit strong to say, no inkling at all. Because remember, last Sunday in 2 Samuel, we did get even a brief glimpse of the fact that the armies of Israel were up against it. Joab said so in 2 Samuel 10. Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear. And that's why he devised the plan that he did, Joab, splitting up the army in the way that he did. So it might be a bit strong to say that apart from Psalm 60, we'd have no inkling at all of what David and the Israelites were facing. But it is certainly true to say that this psalm fills out our understanding of what was really going on. And it does so in a powerful and dramatic way. So this introduction, this extended title has set the stage. Now take a look at verse 1. What does David write here? Look at verses 1 down through 4. He says, oh God, you have rejected us. You've broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. And you'll notice this throughout the psalm. It weaves in this petition that God come to the rescue of his people. Verse 2, you've made the land a quake. You've torn it open, repair its breaches, for it totters. You've made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. So it is, as I said before, a rather jarring opening to this soul. And we've got to admit... We don't know exactly what the circumstances are, what the setbacks are, that David's referring to here in these opening verses. In some way or another, perhaps in several ways, the Lord had been pleased to lay his people very low to make them tremble. And David's using all of these different phrases and images to try to capture it, to try to capture what it felt like. Fearful earthquakes and, and, and painful visions and even debilitating drink. It could be that this is David's poetic way of describing setbacks and, and, and fear that they're facing on these distant fields of battle. That could be. It could also be that at the very same time, he's casting a glance back home, back to the land of Israel, and that there was trouble at home in some way, as well as setbacks on these distant fields of battle. We don't know. And that's not uncommon, right? In the Psalms, you have these these intriguing, impressionistic descriptions without being told exactly what's in view. All we know is that in some way or another, The Lord had been pleased to lay his people low. And that's worth underlining. David knows this was no accident. That God's people were facing what they were facing. It was their God himself. Who had brought these things to pass. So that's verses 1 down through 4. Some darkness and difficulty that David describes here. And that's why David... Cries out to God in the way that he does. Look at verse 5. Look at the next verse. Verse 5. That your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Again, here's David crying out to the Lord because he knows the Lord is the one, the only one, finally, that he can and must cry out to. And right after David's cry for salvation, for rescue, the Lord's resounding reassurance. Look at verse 6. God has spoken in his holiness with exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Understand those are all the names of regions and tribes in the land that belonged to Israel. The point is, ultimately, that land belonged to God, which is why it was His to apportion among His people as He saw fit. It's why He could speak of them as His very own royal adornment, helmet, and scepter. So, so God. Answers with that resounding reassurance about his own people and their land, and then keep going. Look at verse 8. Because in verse 8, God starts making claims that go beyond the land of his own people. Look at verse 8. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. So now we've moved beyond the borders of the land of Israel. And God is speaking about the nations around them, even enemy nations. And he's making these absolute claims. He's putting these nations in their place. Not just in their place on the map, but in their place before him and under him. The Moabites, they get a mention here. Their territory was off to the east of Israel on the other side of the Jordan River. I was saying before, the Edomites, they get a mention here as well. They were also off to the east, but further south. The Philistines, remember their territory was back over to the west of Israel and slightly south along the Mediterranean Sea. And God is saying, whichever direction you look in on the compass, on the map, these nations are mine. They're mine to use, not the other way around. These nations are under me, not the other way around. Listen one more time to Derek Kidner. I love how he puts it. He writes, quote, Like a colossus, God dominates the scene. It is no longer a matter of rivals fighting for possession, but instead this is the lord of the manor parceling out his lands and employments exactly as it suits him, end quote. So David cries out to God for rescue. God provides this resounding reassurance in which he makes these claims about the land of his own people and the nations around them. And that brings us then to the last section of the psalm, picking up at verse nine. Look at verse nine. Here's David again. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So here at the end of the psalm, Looks like David is contemplating his campaign against the Edomites to the south on the other side of the river. And he admits, Lord, we need you. We need you to lead us. We need you to give us the victory. Only you can give us that victory. Lord, we would be foolish to look anywhere else for it. But then he also says, Lord, we need you. And it feels like you've abandoned us. In our hour of need. Only you can save us now. Where are you? But then he also says. Our God will save us. Might feel like he's given up on us. But he hasn't. Not finally. Because the psalm ends on that note of hope. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So the very same God. Who had laid his people low. Remember, that's how the Psalm began. The same God who had brought them low, he will reach down and he will rescue, he will raise them up again. That's Psalm 60. So that's what unfolds here in this Psalm, all the way from the lengthy title that situates it in history. The things that David says and that God says back to him. That's Psalm 60. Now, what do we learn from it? We've made our way through the Psalm. Now we take a step back. We ponder this. What lessons can we learn from it? Well, here's the first one that I want to highlight coming from the very middle of the Psalm, and it's this Brothers and sisters, the nations belong to God. The nations of the earth, even the nations where by and large God is not known, the nations belong to God. That certainly comes through in this psalm, right? Moab, Edom, Philistia, not to mention Ammon, Syria, Tyre, Sidon, and the list goes on and on in David's day. The nations belong to God. And just to say that much is to say a lot. There are a number of truths that are built into that one statement to say that the nations belong to God. So, for example, here's one of them. The nations belong to God in the sense that he made them. He made them. God's the one who made the human race in the beginning, and he made us social creatures who were never meant to live alone we were always meant to live in society and god has brought it to pass that the human race should live on earth as we always have living as discrete peoples under civil authorities god made the nation and we can say that because he's the god of creation and he's the god of providence in the beginning he made all things god of creation And ever since, he has been sovereignly governing all things. God of providence. That's why we can say, God made the nations. The Apostle Paul says so. In Acts chapter 17. He's there in Athens. And and he begins to declare the word of God. God. In this city where, by and large, the true God is not known. Acts 17, God says this. This is Acts 17, verse 26. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That's Acts 17, verse 26. The boundaries of their dwelling place, the Lord reigns over the boundaries of the nation. Our family came across a delightful story earlier this year on the BBC website. Headline, Belgian farmer accidentally moves French border. This was beautiful. This was just one of the stories we needed in the days of COVID. This was back in May. Here was the report. A farmer in Belgium has caused a stir after inadvertently redrawing the country's border with France. A local history enthusiast, and you know it's always trouble when a local history enthusiast gets involved. A local history enthusiast was walking in the forest when he noticed the stone marking the boundary between the two countries had moved seven and a half feet. The Belgian farmer, apparently annoyed by the stone in the path of his tractor, had moved it inside French territory. Instead of causing international uproar, the incident has been met with smiles on both sides of the border. The mayor of the Belgian village said, quote, he made Belgium bigger and France smaller, not a good idea. End quote. The amused mayor of the neighboring French village responded, we should be able to avoid a new border war. End quote. Throughout human history, oh the stories that have been told! There have been bloody wars, redrawing boundaries, and there have been light-hearted moments involving farmers and tractors, and everything in bete- between. Tense diplomatic negotiations. Fragile post-war peace treaties, friendly neighborly compromises, and our God reigns over it all. Christian, you can look at a world map with all of its boundary lines and nation labels, and you can say, my God made the nation. You can look at a world map and say, this is no accident That there are these nations on earth right now, just as they are. So we can start there. God made the nations, but then we can keep going. Still our first point, that the nations belong to God. And we've unpacked that by saying that God made them. But then we can keep going and say the nations belong to God in the sense that he governs their fortunes over time. He governs their fortunes over time. Listen again to what Paul says when he's there in Athens that day. Acts 17, verse 26. God is the one who made every nation of mankind, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You see that? Allotted periods. So it's not just their geographical boundaries on the map, but also their time periods in history. Their rises and falls throughout time, their victories and their defeats, their emergences and their disappearances, nations come and go. Boundaries do get redrawn, and our God reigns over it all. Where is the kingdom of Moab now? God governs the fortunes of the nations over time. It became something of a running joke in our family that for a while... The only world atlas we had in the house was the one I had in college. Copyright 1987. And we've still got it. I pulled it down off the shelf last week as I was thinking about these things. It's on page 29 in that atlas that you will find the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Yugoslavia is on page 24. Czechoslovakia is on page 26. A nation called Burma is on page 36. And in case you're curious, the border between Belgium and France is on page 17. But that atlas feels like a museum piece now. We did eventually order a new one, but someday that one's going to be out of date too. I love maps. Cartography is fascinating to me. One of the things about it that's fascinating to me is that things change. In the Bible alone, setting aside all of human history before and after it, in the Bible alone, it's one superpower after another that rises and falls. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And of course, that has been true of human history before and since. So it's not just when you look at a map and see the way things are today. It's also when you look at your collection of atlases on your bookshelf over a lifetime, you can say the same thing. This is no accident that things have unfolded in time the way they have. You can say, again, our God, my God reign. So the nations belong to God in the sense that he made them. And also in the sense that he governs their fortunes over time. And then here's one more. The nations belong to God in the sense that they serve his purposes. And not the other way around. They, see, they serve his purposes. They are his to use as he sees fit. To advance what it is that he intends to bring about in the world. Later on in the Old Testament, God actually refers to the nation of Assyria as the rod of my anger. And he says that because he sovereignly wields the nation of Assyria, the armies of Assyria, in such a way as to chasten his own covenant people for turning their backs on him. Even more shocking than that... Later on in the Old Testament, God actually refers to the king of Persia, Cyrus, as my anointed one. (laughs) And in the Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. Because that's what Messiah means. It means my anointed one. He calls Cyrus that. The king of Persia. That's one of those verses that you go back and reread. Because you think, did I read that right? You did. He calls the king of Persia my anointed one. And he says that because he sovereignly, providentially governs the king of Persia in such a way that his own covenant people should be restored after exile. So whether the purpose is judgment, that's what he used Assyria for, or the purpose is restoration and blessing, that's what he used Cyrus, and Persia for the nations belong to God in that they serve his purposes. They're his to use as he sees fit. Remember what the wise man says in Proverbs. This is Proverbs 21, verse 1. It says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's true of kings. Well, then, by extension, it's true of kingdoms, too. He turns them wherever he will. So in David's day, it was Moab, Edom, Philistia, the rest of them. In our own day, it's England and France. India and Pakistan and Afghanistan. China and Japan, South Africa and Burkina Faso, Chile and Brazil. And the United States of America. The nations belong to God. And all of those things that we just noticed. Those three truths. They're all still true. He made them. The nations that are today. God made them. And he governs their fortunes. And they serve his purposes. And in all of those ways. When it comes to those truths. The United States of America is no different from Afghanistan and China and North Korea and any other nation you might want to bring to mind that makes you gasp and tremble. In all of those ways, when it comes to those truths, every nation on earth, we might say, is one nation, one more nation under God. That is to say, under God as the God of creation and the God of providence. So when you pick up the newspaper and start reading, or when you surf the headlines online, and when you read about what's going on in the world, what's going on among nations, including our own nation, on the international stage, Christian, you can worship. Because you can remember that the nations belong... To your God. So that all of those headlines. Are nothing other than the unfolding. Of his own perfect purposes. So let us worship and trust. And rest. The nations belong to God. So that's one lesson we can glean here today. Because of what God claims here. About the nations in this psalm. They belong to him. They always have. They always will. Here's a second lesson that we can learn today. And this one has to do with us as the church. In the midst of the nations, God has his people. In the midst of the nations, God has his one covenant people, God has his church. Now in David's day, that was one nation that had its own separate land. That's not the case anymore. Now the church isn't a nation with a land. Instead, it's a people that's scattered across the lands, throughout the nations. But still, it's true to say, and we can learn this from our psalm, in the midst of the nations, God has his people. Now the worldwide church, the Catholic small C, Catholic Church. God has his people. And here, too, we can dig into that a bit, parse it out. First of all, we can say this, in the midst of the nations, God preserves his people. God preserves his people. In other words, he's not going to allow the church to be snuffed out on earth. Our confession of faith makes this point. Our confession of faith in its chapter on the church says this, paraphrasing here, no matter how bad things may get for the church in a particular place, for that matter, in a whole generation, and then this is a direct quote from our confession, nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will, end quote. So God preserves his people. That's part of it. But then this as well God blesses his people. God blesses his people. In other words, it's not just that the church isn't going to be snuffed out. It's also that Christ is positively building the church in this age. He's governing all things, including the nations, for the sake of the welfare of the church. That, too, is something you can bring to mind whenever you're reading the headlines about Vast, even distant international affairs, as well as affairs closer to home. You can say, under God, under Christ, this is all for me. This is all for the church. Christ, governing the nations. Ordering all things. For the sake of the advancement of our welfare as his people. Imagine that. Our confession of faith confesses that as well in the chapter on providence in our confession it says this as the providence of God in general reaches to all creatures so after a most special manner it takes care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof end quote it's all for us In the midst of the nations, God has us, preserving us, even building us. So brothers and sisters, whenever it's one of those times, one of those seasons, whether locally, regionally, nationally, globally, whenever it's one of those times when it feels like the Christian church is being pushed and pulled, Maybe it feels like the very ground we're standing on is quaking, being torn apart, so that the ground is tottering and we are tottering on it. You can turn to Psalm 60 and you can hear the voice of God say, this people is mine. The church. In the midst of the nations, you are mine. I'm going to guard you. I'm going to grow you. Every single earthly nation, as I was saying before, is under God in the sense that he is the God of creation and the God of providence. But we who are the church, we can keep going and say more. We can also say that we who are the church are under God as the God of grace. Only the church can say that. God has his people and oh, he has us. In his firm grip. God has his people. So the nations belong to God. That was first. God has his people. That was second. And then here's one more. A third lesson that we can learn. From this psalm. And the lesson is this. As we think about. David being brutally honest here about what was going on and how he felt, the lesson is this. Sometimes this is what victory looks like and feels like. More precisely, this is what the road to victory looks like and feels like. In a sense, for the Christian, this is always What victory entails, because this is the very pattern of the gospel. As it is sometimes put, there is no crown without the cross. We know very well that these campaigns ended in victory for King David. And we know that because that's what we learned last Sunday in 2 Samuel. We know very well that Israel prevailed so that they must have rejoiced So that they must have celebrated. But what we're learning here in Psalm 60. Is that there was suffering and setback along the way. And it hurt. It hurt because it felt like God had given up on them. Deep down. The faithful among them knew that he hadn't. But it hurt because it felt that way. And they were willing to say so. David himself was willing to express all of that pain and perplexity in poetry and in prayer. And yet he was also willing to say that he hadn't given up hope that they would prevail in the end. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. And brothers and sisters, that is also a very good word for us today. We know that the cause of the church is going to prevail in the end. Certainly in the end, which is our heavenly end. Truth and holiness and the glory of God are going to be vindicated in the end. And we will be vindicated too. But we should not be surprised by the pains that God puts us through along the way, because that's the pattern, that's how you get there. I was thinking about how to illustrate this particular point. If you follow sports at all, and even if you don't, you're probably familiar with the Hired, overused cliches that coaches and athletes trot out in their interviews and press conferences. We, um, We follow hockey in the Wolf House. Hockey players are notorious for this. If you are ever having trouble sleeping, just queue up a nice long YouTube video of hockey players being interviewed. For that matter, it doesn't even need to be a long video. You might only need about five minutes. Taking it one game at a time, giving it 110%, play as a team, stick to the game plan, get pucks to the net. That's one of our favorites, get pucks to the net. The other team, they're a good team. We've got to be ready. Now, to be fair, there is some truth in those cliches and expressions. That's why they took on a life of their own in the first place. They came from somewhere. And for me, there's one of those familiar expressions that rings especially true. Whenever they interview a coach or an athlete after they've just won the championship, it's almost a certainty that somebody on that team, maybe even several of them, somebody's going to say something like, we had to endure a lot of adversity this season. Bank on it. I opened up the sports section this morning, and there it is. The local um, professional women's soccer team won the championship yesterday. And sure enough, you're only a few paragraphs in, and they're talking about resilience and perseverance because of what they went through this season. Almost every single time, you're going to hear something like that. Oh, we had to endure adversity, obstacles, setbacks, injuries, COVID. Sure, we just won the championship. But we had to go through a lot in order to get here. We had to come together. We had to stick together. It was hard, but we believed. Almost every single time you're going to hear that. And it's true. No wonder they say it. It's true. And not only is it true, but of course they're going to be keenly aware of that reality in those moments of triumph. How could they not be? They're keenly aware of what they had to go through in order to reach the mountaintop. They might even have some stories to share that never made it into the sports sections. Well, in its own way, that's a picture of the church's fortunes. Yes, the cause of the church is going to prevail in the end, but we should not be surprised by the pains that God puts us through along the way. That's what Victory looks like. We shouldn't be surprised because God in His Word has put us on the hoodus. Acts chapter 14. Paul going around strengthening and encouraging the churches that He just planted by saying to them, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Peter says several times in his first letter, brothers, don't be surprised. This is the pattern of the gospel. Jesus himself went down into suffering on his way to glory and victory. Don't be surprised that we who are now found in him by faith should find that it's our pattern too. So brothers and sisters, let's learn from David today. David prevailed. David and Joab and the armies prevailed over the Edomites and the Arameans and the Philistines and the rest of them. And thankfully, in Psalm 60, David also told us what the path to victory looked like and felt like. So let us not despair, but let us trust. For David's God remains the same. And he remains our God and we his people. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you, not only for the victories that you gave to David and his generals and his armies, but for the poem that you've given us through David, this psalm. We confess today that the nations belong to you. We rejoice today that in the midst of the nations, we are your redeemed people under your grace. we pray that you would encourage us with those very truths as we make our way to victory at times through tears. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.